Welcome to episode 48 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Remission rates of nearly 80% potentially compared to 10% with current treatments. For people with PTSD who are suffering terribly, we should be rushing to the finishing line. Hi everyone, Ruan here. We just want to offer the following update before we get launched into today's episode. We recorded this conversation in October last year, and on 1 February this year, the Therapeutic Good Administration, so the TGA, announced that from 1 July 2023, the medical use of MDMA and psilocybin will be rescheduled from Schedule 9, which is prohibited substances, to Schedule 8, which is controlled medicines. So this will enable authorized psychiatrists to prescribe these substances for treatment-resistant depression and for treatment of resistant post-traumatic stress disorders. This is absolutely huge news and it makes this conversation with Peter Hunt from Mind Medicine Australia, who was at the forefront of this application, even more timely. So we're really excited to get stuck into today's conversation. Hi. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Peter Hunt, who is not your conventional mental health practitioner. Peter is in fact a career investment banker with 35 years of experience as a banker. He's advised local and multinational companies and governments in Australia. But the reason why we're speaking with Peter is because he is also an active philanthropist involved in funding, developing and scaling social sector organisations with a goal to create a better and fairer world. Specifically, Peter is the chairman of Mind Medicine Australia, which he established with his wife, Tanya de Jong, in 2018. Mind Medicine Australia supports clinical research and works towards regulatory-approved and evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies. In our conversation today, we explore a course that Mind Medicine Australia has developed to help train the next generation of clinicians. Peter shares his view on the application of MDMA and psychedelic-assisted therapy in Australia, as well as some of his own personal journey. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioner. All the practitioners are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured and are available for online or in-person consultations. On TalkLink, you can watch a short video of each therapist to get to know them a little and check out their training and experience as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. Yeah, I'm, I'm Peter Hunt. I, I, I chair uh, a mental health charity called My Medicine Australia. The, the purpose of My Medicine Australia is to develop the the ecosystem in Australia, the environment, so that psychedelic-assisted therapies can become a normal part of our mental health system. Uh, so that you know, really, if you've got depression or PTSD or one of the other key mental illnesses, these therapies can can work with. And you go to see your psychiatrist or your doctor or whatever. What that psychiatrist psychiatrist will do is talk through the alternatives for you, and that could be antidepressants. It could be going for therapy it could be tms it could be ect there's a whole range of things that uh, the psychiatrist may talk to you about but we also we want that psychiatrist to also say to you look there's another therapy called psychedelic assisted therapy Uh, this may suit you for the following reasons and take you through the pros and cons so that you as a patient have the choice now we're not trying to get in the way of the patient doctor relationship we want patients and doctors to have more treatment options uh, there's so much in there we're going to unpack. Um, let's maybe let's maybe just take a step back. Why you've got this really interesting background? You're a you're an investment banker originally. You're not the no, uh, the. Is that right? Yeah, I was an investment banker for about thirty five years. Uh, really left investment bank over ten years ago. I mean, I wouldn't imagine you as the the typical advocate for this type of therapy. So why are you doing this? Uh, because both my wife and I have a, a major commitment to the not-for-profit sector. You know, I, I, I realise I've been lucky in life. You know, I, I was lucky enough to get into a sector uh, really in the early stages, and I've, I've done very well, and I've, uh, I'm healthy, and I've had, a, I've had a good life. But there are so many people in our society 
that haven't had that luck. And mental illness is one of the most debilitating things. You know, you can try and be positive about your life. You can try and get out there and do things and uh, lead, a, lead a, a good life. But if you're suffering from mental illness, it is really hard. And the problem at the moment is that the treatment options that doctors have and health practitioners have available, frankly, aren't good for a, lot, a large number of people. They don't work. Or if they, if they do work, they work poorly. Unless we have innovation in the sector, uh, what we're going to find is that suicide will continue uh, because desperate people do terrible things. Uh, people will lead lives which aren't the lives they should lead, uh, all because we haven't tackled the problem of how we actually help people get out of the mental health sector and away from debilitating mental illness. So why did I get in into this area? Because uh, it's a hard area. It may, be, it may sound a bit, a bit corny, but it's because we care. You know, we actually want to see people have the chance in life that, frankly, I was given to lead the sort of lives that they want to lead. Hmm. I mean, that, that sounds incredibly admirable, um, the, the driver there. And you're right, this is a hard space from a couple of angles. So we've had some of Australia's leading experts talk to our listeners about TMS. Uh, we've, we've talked about ECT. We've talked about SSRIs. So, you know, we've covered the conventional array of, of tools and we actually had Dr. Alana Roy from Mind Medicine Australia introduce psychedelics to us. Um, so I think you'd probably be living under a rock today if you sort of have your finger on the pulse and you're not aware of the huge amount of momentum, the, the incredible pressure towards psychedelic assisted therapy. And, um, and of course, there's, there's a lot of complexity around that, right? There's a lot of regulatory hurdles to jump over. There's a lot of research that needs to be done to, to qualify these medicines. Um, so I'd be curious, what, what is Mind Medicine doing in Australia and how do you see the landscape playing out? And particularly, I guess, with your investment cap on, we've had a lot of clinicians talk to us about the application, but as an investor and, and sort of as someone trying to open these doors through your nonprofit, how do you see this playing out in Australia? What are some of the timeframes and, and what, what are sort of the processes we're going to go through? Yeah, well, look, the first thing to say, and you're quite right, there's a lot of momentum now behind these therapies as more and more people get to understand the benefits. But when we started my medicine three and a half years ago, there was virtually no commentary about these therapies in Australia. Uh, yes, there were trials taking place overseas, but really there was very little media coverage, uh, very little debate, very little understanding. You know, you'd go and talk to a psychiatrist and mention the word psychedelic assisted therapies, and they'd look at you you know, quizzically, it, they just they, they just didn't know what you were talking about. So one of the things we've been doing over the last three and a half years is a massive awareness campaign. And that's involved us, you know, every, almost every day speaking to different groups. So psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, and so on, to bring them up the curves so that they understand that uh, this isn't hokey pokey stuff. Uh, this is, this is, uh, uh, these are therapies that have gone through now an enormous number of trials. And uh, the, the trials have shown them to be effective and they've shown them to be safe when they're done properly in a medically controlled environment. So uh, you're right. I mean, there is momentum now, but there wasn't momentum when we started. So that's the first point. And uh, the need for education is really important because we're dealing with substances that uh, have been demonized in our society. Uh, the war on drugs 50 years ago basically outlawed them. When something is outlawed, the typical response people have is it must be bad otherwise why would it be outlawed now the, the, the comment i want to make here is we're talking about medical use you know whatever people think about recreational use of these substances uh we're not talking about recreational use we're talking about medical use and in a medically controlled environment they're safe and effective but you've got to get over that educational curve with people you've got to get them to, to actually realize that just because something is illegal for recreational purposes doesn't mean that the substance itself is bad. It's how you use it that has to be questioned, but the substance itself is, is neutral. So a lot of work done with that. In terms of your question about timing, the challenge in Australia is that we have a lot of inertia in our system and we have a lot of vested interests. We have, an we have a system where if you've got depression today with current treatments, you've probably got a one in three chance of going into remission. Uh, you've got a 
another one in three chance of some form of positive response. Now, when I say positive, it may mean that you're on SSRIs. You've got to take them every day. They may have some unfortunate side effects for you. They may make you, they, they condition you to realizing you've got mental illness every day because every time you take an SSRI, mentally you're saying to yourself, I've got a mental illness. I actually need the SSRI to control it. So there's a third there who gets some form of positive response, but with, with uh, it's not all upside, you know, because as I say, it's a conditioning that you've got mental illness and you may have nasty side effects like sleep, libido, a whole range of things that go along with taking SSRIs. And then there's a third, third group who get no benefit. They get no benefit from either therapy or pharmaceuticals. And for those people, the system doesn't work. And they're the people that we're really focused on in these early days. And part of what we're doing is convincing or trying to convince the regulators that, that it's time that we can go on researching these therapies forever. And, you know, we should keep on researching them because we should keep on trying to improve them. But we've got to a stage where the data is clear. They're safe. They're effective if they're used in the right way, people in that third, that third of people who get no benefit, they deserve the right to access these therapies. So that's depression. With post-traumatic stress disorder, if, if I did the same numbers for you, it's less than 10% who go into remission. So if your son or daughter or wife or friend has post-traumatic stress disorder, they have a one in 10 chance under the current treatment paradigm of getting well. There's probably another 25% who get some form of positive response, but that doesn't mean they get well. It just means they get some sort of benefit. And there's 65% who don't get any benefit. And if you've got post-traumatic stress disorder, that's a really difficult, challenging mental illness to have. Those people deserve the right to be able to choose with their psychiatrists to access these therapies. And we're doing a lot of work to try and overcome the inertia in our regulatory system to enable that to take place and it's not it's challenging because it's so easy to say no of course and it's easy to stay and and keep the course right um but you know i've heard just in my anecdotal conversations with clinicians and i guess we've been incredibly grateful to have access to some of the the most prolific contributors to psychology mental health counseling psychiatry on on our show and I'll confess, this is like my pet topic when we're done with the conversation. You know, we'll have our theme and at the end, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, by the way, uh, what do you think of psychedelic assisted therapy? Just because it's such an emerging space, it's always an interesting point. And almost every person I've spoken to in the field, professional, have said, yeah, I know, it's really interesting. I am really curious to see where this goes. I think that it has huge promise. That's been the consistent theme. So, I mean, I think that's a good signal, right? It is, but it's interesting what you've just said because what, what you're highlighting is that people are curious. I'm interested to see what it goes, but the but the the challenge is to convert people from saying that to actually making it happen. You know, we're we're great in Australia of saying, yeah, we're curious. It looks interesting, but there's very few people that take that and then make something happen, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to convert that curiosity to. Let's make it happen. Let's stop talking about it. Let's stop just being curious. Let's actually put the patient first and provide these therapies to patients as an option with the right controls in place to make sure they're safe. And, you know, we are very focused on right protocols, right medical environment uh, to make sure that the experience is a safe experience. It can be a challenging experience, but the challenge is actually part of the way a patient recuperates and goes into remission. So it's an important challenge to go through. I want to dig into that process in a lot more detail, but I think just just as a sidestep before we go there, I mean, there's sort of two sides of this coin. The one is the process for getting drugs legalized takes time and it's complex and maybe it's too conservative. I mean, the COVID vaccine was maybe an example of that, right? Like I think Moderna had the vaccine within two days. And they had people volunteering to do stress trials and, and yet it didn't roll out. Hundreds of thousands of people died while we were too afraid to expose people in, in a context of a clinical trial. 
Um, so, so maybe there's a separate conversation there for the conservatism of the process. But as it stands at the moment, we've got three phases of clinical trials. And at the moment, we're at phase two, largely speaking, right? No, no, no. If you look at MDMA-assisted therapy, that's halfway through phase three. In other words, phase three, there are two separate trials. Sure. They've completed the first trial. They're now into the second trial. The first trial showed remission rates in phase three of 67%. Over the next 12 months, based upon the phase two trials, they're expecting that to go to, to go to close to 80%. Now, just think about that. Remission rates of nearly 80% potentially compared to 10% with current treatments. For people with PTSD who are suffering terribly, we should be rushing to the finishing line. Now, I don't mean by that we don't make sure the right controls are in place. The other thing I should say about that phase three trial, it was really interesting. You know, they had the placebo group. And when you're dealing with people with PTSD, and I think the average life of the PTSD for the group was about 14 years. So these are people who had really been suffering for a long time. What they found with the placebo group was actually the risks were greater. In other words, the placebo group had had the placebo plus therapy and the MDMA group had MDMA plus therapy. And what they found was that in the, in the placebo group, you had, you, you had with, with some of the patients, you had suicidality. You didn't have that in the MDMA group. And what that's actually saying is it may well be that MDMA therapy for PTSD is actually safer than conventional therapy. And I'd love to unpack that for you and why that might be the case. But if that is true, that, that we're actually talking about something that could be safer than conventional therapies. It's really interesting. Psilocybin, you're, you're dead right. It's, in phase, it's just completed phase 2B trials, uh, a very large trial. And again, we saw remission rates for depression in that trial twice as high as remission rates in the placebo group. Uh, so again, very positive results. Yeah, I think you paint an interesting picture when you consider that the placebo are at a potentially an increased risk of suicide, right? So it's not like you're truly trading off against a placebo of, of someone that's unaffected by um, depression at all. You're actually trading off against a placebo that is at risk. Um, and so I think you, you, you make a very valid case there. I, I guess, um, you know, th there is this pipeline, this journey um, of, of getting drugs clinically approved. And Australia is sort of, you know, a couple of steps behind that still. I mean, the, once the FDA in the US approves it, maybe the TSA will approve it. Maybe they won't in Australia. Um, maybe they'll make us do our own trials. And I know some of those are already under the way. Um, yep. I mean, what, what's your sense on the rollout process in Australia? I know Mind Medicine's been quite forward in, in lobbying the TSA directly. A big part of this conversation, I think, as I mean, it sounds kind of dry, but it's really relevant, is just legalizing getting access to the drugs right now. Um, can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, it's uh, uh, well, firstly, if we take a step back, uh, we're not breaking new ground. And wh why do I say that? Uh, if you think about opioids, Think about morphine. Morphine is used quite normally in hospitals. If somebody is in severe pain, morphine can be one of the options. And none of us look at that and think, oh, that's a bit iffy. Uh, if, if one of our loved ones is in pain, we accept that as being a way, a way for pain relief. But you know, morphine uh, is actually very close to heroin, uh, structurally. And so it's a medicine that has to be kept under lock and key and has to be kept carefully in hospitals and accounted for to make sure that it doesn't uh, get diverted out of hospitals and medical environments into the recreational area. Uh, opioids are, have been one of the biggest causes of, of uh, overdoses of people. So, you know, you've got, to, you've got to look after them and make sure they're used properly. So when we talk about psilocybin or MDMA, we're talking about the same regime. We're talking about it coming into a hospital or medical environment, it being accounted for, kept in a safe. Uh, when it's taken out of the safe, you know, two doctors or one doctor, one pharmacist, or, or one nurse and one doctor having to sign for it. Uh, accountability back for the TGA. We're talking about all of that, but that is a tried and trusted pathway in Australia for uh, medicines that need to be used really sensibly and, under, and in, in, in controlled environments. So that's the first point. The second point is because these medicines have been outlawed, and I, I'm referring them to them as medicines because we're using them as medicines in these trials. 
because these substances have been outlawed for 50 years, there aren't many manufacturers globally that actually manufacture them. And in order to be used as medicines, as you would know, they have to be medical grade GMP standard. And what my medicine has had to do is explore overseas where they can be obtained from. And, and we've done that and we've now got uh, sources of medical grade MDMA and, and medical grade psilocybin from two overseas uh, pharmaceutical companies. And we've got them at reasonable pricing. So they're now available. As the therapies become more widely used in Australia, we're gonna need local production. And again, we've done some work on that as well. But yeah, I mean, secure sources of supply are fundamental. We'd like them to be in Australia because that obviously overcomes supply line difficulties. And we're seeing a lot of those in the world today. But at the moment, yes, we do have right sources. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an issue with that though, right? In that pharmaceutical companies are incentivized when they have a patent on a product and they can control it and exclusively run with it and make money from it. They're, they're a for-profit entity. And these drugs are really old. And to my knowledge, you can't get a patent on MDMA or on psilocybin, right? So how do you incentivize a pharmaceutical producer to make a drug that they don't necessarily control? It's like, hey, do you want to make some generic Panadol is kind of the argument. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, the answer to that is, is quite simple, that if you think about uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, there are two types. There's the type that you talk about, uh, the type who want, want patents and want to make big margins out of, pa out of patented products. Uh, they say to justify all the investment time they put into developing that product. There's a set, second group of pharmaceutical companies that manufacture off-patent products. So, you know, when you go into uh, your chemist with a prescription for uh, statins, for example, the chemist may say to you, well, do you want the actual product which the doctors suggested, which is the, the, the product which comes from uh, uh, the original manufacturer who had the patient patent, it's now off patent, or I've got a white label product here for you, which is much cheaper, which would you prefer? And my, my reaction to that is always to say to the chemist, well, are they identical? And when the pharmacist says yes, then I say, well, of course, I want the cheaper one. So I say that because there are contract manufacturers who manufacture pharmaceutical product, which is off patent. And they make money out of doing that, but they don't get the margins that they would, they would get were it patented. So you can, you can access these contract pharmaceutical companies and they just get a, they just get a, a payment in exchange for manufacturing, just in the same way as somebody who manufactures any product, which is off patent, can get uh, a payment. So, so you'd engage that that cohort. I, yes. You know, I, I kind of want to go back to something you said earlier. I think you're preaching to the choir when we talk about the risk of opioids and how we manage that. And I think you know, just to build on that, for me, when I looked at the storyline and I realised that while the war on drug was at its highest point. Purdue Pharma were running on the side making OxyContin and realizing that the devastation that that caused, it's like the world just totally lost sight of what to focus on. And, and in the wake of that, um, you know, created this, this incredible train crash societally behind us. And it, I think it's just an important salient lesson for us to stop and reflect on when we think about how we legislate drugs, because that, it, you know, it clearly didn't work in that instance. No, you're spot on there, and it's it, you made a really important point, and that is, as a society, we're not really good at reflecting. We're good at taking these sound bites and not really thinking about what the sound bites actually telling us, and then and then passing that on to somebody else. And you know, OxyContin uh, did an extraordinary amount of damage. It was a, a product that went through the, fa the, 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 the phase, the trial phases that you've talked about. Uh, it had the nice label on it, uh, had to be prescribed, but it was completely abused. And that abuse led to a huge number of people dying through overdoses. Uh, it also led to that pharmaceutical company basically applying for bankruptcy because they, they had misled people. So, you know, again, we need to be more reflective. And when people make statements and it's mixed up with profit making, We've got to be just a bit careful that we don't assume that somebody who's trying to make big profits is naturally going to give a completely honest picture about the safety of their product. And that's what happened in that case. And uh, 
it is reprehensible and we're not talking about that sort of situation here because the problem with that product is that patients took it home and if you wanted if you became addicted to that product you could actually go you could actually go to several doctors and get several prescriptions and load yourself up on the stuff here we're talking about a situation that you would only be able to access these medicines as part of therapy in a medically controlled environment. You would never be allowed to take them home. So that, that overdose risk, uh, it, it's just not there. It's like saying, well, is there an overdose risk of morphine in hospital? Well, uh, if you've got competent doctors and they're doing their work properly, uh, there isn't an overdose risk. Uh, or if there is a risk, it's a small risk. But if you, if you then allow morphine to go into, become a takeaway product, then, th then there is a risk. And what we have to do with uh, these substances to give people comfort is to make sure the patients can't take them home. So we take away that sort of, that risk. By the way, that the overdose risk with psilocybin is absolutely negligible. Well, that that's right. That that's what I wanted to go to. Fundamentally, we're talking about a, a chemically completely different class of, of medicines, which they are not addictive in their nature. And um, as far as I'm aware, there there is no lethal dose of psilocybin that that we're aware of. We don't even know how high you need to go. That's certainly the case for LSD. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think. Uh, I think what, what the, the, the pharmacologists have said to me is that you would need, if you were taking the mushroom, which has the psilocybin content, you'd probably need to eat half your body weight in mushrooms to get to the stage where it was dangerous. Now, frankly, if somebody is prepared to do that, they deserve everything that's coming to them. Uh, MDMA is a bit different. So MDMA, if you look at the, the medical dose uh, and you compare that with a, a toxic dose, uh, the toxic dose from memory is about seven times the medical dose. So there's a huge margin for error there. Uh, but I wouldn't advocate that people just go out and, and uh, take huge amounts of MDMA because at, at a level, it can become dangerous. But it's not dangerous when we talk about medical dosing levels. So there's a new series on Netflix, which I'm sure you're across. Michael Pollan, he wrote the book, How to Change Your Mind. And um, a friend of mine was watching it. And I said, how did you find it? And he said, oh, I didn't even get halfway through it. I, I stopped watching halfway through it. And I started walking around outside looking for magic mushrooms. And, you know, I, I knew I just needed to do this. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, that started the conversation of... You know, I don't think it's just the drug, the medicine that you take. It sort of needs to be bookended in a process that you're describing here. And and the bookends tend to be quite heavy talk therapy based for a lot of people, not for everyone. But, you know, it's setting someone up on, on what to expect and what to find and what they want to get out of it and setting a lot of the intention and, and expectations and also equipping them on how to deal with, with what you talked about earlier, difficult experiences. And then there's the processing afterwards of how do you fit all the pieces together? What do they mean? What are you going to take out of it? How do you put this in context to what you wanted to get? So it's it's actually quite an involved therapeutic process. It's not just going out munching on, on some mushrooms that you found under the tree. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a therapy. It's a it's a psychedelic assisted therapy. So, um, can you maybe dig into how mind medicine sees that playing out in Australia? You've already talked about how the drug would physically be controlled in a hospital setting. H how do you see that playing out as an experience and as a process? Yeah, well, you, when you're quite right that that, that uh, we're not talking about uh, just using MDMA or psilocybin and miraculously go into remission. We're talking about that being, an, I mean, the, the terminology that the psychologists often use is that uh, psilocybin and, and MDMA being an adjunct to therapy. It's a therapeutic process that's fundamental. Uh, but the beauty of these medicines is, they, is that they aid the therapeutic process because they encourage the individual to go inside themselves and really explore the problems that they have. Um, how do we see it playing out? The cost of these therapies. Uh, it's quite significant because uh, if you take into account the uh, the therapy, you know, you're looking at uh, uh, probably a couple of therapy sessions before the medicine session. You're probably looking at two medicine sessions, and then you're probably looking at three to four sessions 
after the medicine session to really integrate each medicine, the learnings of each medicine session. So uh, the medicine, medicine sessions themselves are probably six to eight hours long. So it's, it's a long use of, of uh, therapist time. But the beauty is that uh, once you get through it, you've got these, this great chance of, of going into remission. So if you like, the upfront costs are gonna be significantly higher than getting a prescription for SSRIs. But the beauty is that if, if the therapy works for you and you go into remission, you no longer have to depend upon the mental health system for support. Uh, now, in terms of covering those costs, you know, my medicine is very focused on making sure that these therapies are available to anyone who needs them in Australia, uh, provided the patient and the doctor believe they're appropriate. They have to be affordable to, to everybody, irrespective of wealth and irrespective of where they live. And when you think about it, that is a massive, that, that is a massive rollout challenge. So that's what we're working on at the moment. I think what we'll find, and we found it with medicinal cannabis, is that it will start slowly. But as people get more and more confident about the use of these therapies, more and more doctors and more and more psychologists will be setting up practices focused on providing these therapies. But it will take time. And uh, one of the roles that my medicine will play is raising funds to help subsidize people who can't otherwise afford access to the therapies. And that's that, you know, that's the charitable intent of the organization. Is the cost driver the time there, the time to do the sessions, the time to do the actual dosing? Yeah, yeah this is, you've hit, hit directly on it that people keep getting worried about the cost of the medicine. Actually, the cost of the medicine is going to be tiny relative to the cost of the therapist time. That's where the big cost is. Uh, one of the things we're starting to explore is, you know, can you do this in groups? Uh, I mean, that's how it's done often in ceremony, where people take it. Uh, um, yeah, to use the term recreationally is actually is actually a really bad phrase because you know people often take it as you know, as part of a ceremony, and they take it to to, to give themselves the opportunity to go inside themselves, and explore different levels of consciousness. Here we're talking about using it very much as part of the medical system, very much under the discipline of, uh, of therapists and, and psychiatrists. The group session really strikes a chord with me because it's just so prolific in humans' history, right? I think, I think I read a report by one anthropologist that said that only two societies ever studied did not have some element of um, psychedelic group initiation process. And one of them was like the North American Inuits. So, and, and the only reason they suspect is because they couldn't find any because it was, everything was under ice. Like there's no, there's no mind altering fish or algae that they grew in their area. But if, if they had access to it, presumably they probably would have had the same ceremony. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of healing, uh, and a lot of work that's done in those community contexts. So that's, that's an interesting thought to me that we could potentially transition to almost a, almost like a, an, an earlier form of human style community again, um, you know, with almost like a shaman at the head of it. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a really interesting area because, you know, if you think about uh, treatments for drug addiction, often that's done through group therapy. In other words, you know, people who, uh, for example, heroin addicts will get into a group with a facilitator and they draw, they draw comfort and, and support from the people around them who are going through the same uh, the same journey, and it may well be we can do the same thing here. We can have you know six people, for example, uh, going through uh, the psilocybin medicine session. Uh, psilocybin, you know, when you take it, the number of people around you is sort of irrelevant. You're you're in your own world. So if you have six people in a circle, why wouldn't that work? I mean, each one of them will go through their own experience. When they come out of the experience, they can discuss it together. They can they, they can exchange views and learnings. They can provide they can provide peer support to each other uh, after the therapy is finished. I mean, you know, the great thing about you know social media has its pros and cons, but one of the great pros is that you can form groups, and the groups can then actually talk about their issues and uh, the support that they need and the challenges they're facing. 
so that's a way of, of dramatically reducing the costs of the actual medicine dosing sessions. And it may well be that some of the integration sessions can be done in groups because again, you know, we learn as human beings from each other. Uh, so why wouldn't we be doing that? Uh, but that's into the future. I mean, that's, you know, I think it will start very much on you know, two therapists per patient, but we have to drive down the cost to make it more and more accessible. I think the argument you made earlier, I don't know if explicitly, I don't think explicitly made this, but it was implicitly certainly on the table of, you know, weighing up the the, the cost overall of someone who's chronically depressed versus an acute therapy that may last, you know, a very short period of time at a high cost. I think that that would probably, without running the numbers, I don't know, but I just intuitively feel like it, the scales are going to get tipped in favor of, of a once-off therapy, right? Like it's going to be much cheaper doing that than a life of SSRI drugs. Yeah, and you, you think about, you know, if you look at, for example, unemployment and, and dependence on benefits, it's actually much higher with people with mental illness. Not surprisingly, because if you've got mental illness, you're challenged in terms of uh, the discipline of work. Uh, so if you can get somebody well, not only is that good for that person because they can then get out and lead the life they should be entitled to lead, but it means there's more, there's much less support required from our society to support that person. And if that releases a whole, if that releases a, a lot of funds, uh, then those funds can be hopefully used to support people who don't get the benefit from these medicines or have mental illnesses that, uh, you know, are really, really challenging to any treatment. Uh, so you did right. I mean, yes, upfront costs are higher. Uh, but if you can get people well, wow, they become fully productive citizens. They're no longer depending, dependent on government benefits. And hopefully we also see other social problems starting to uh, get dealt with. So, for example, homelessness. If you look at homeless people, the rates of mental illness are really high. If we can actually treat people so that that mental illness goes away, it may well be that the homelessness levels will we'll, uh, we'll start to reduce significantly. Domestic violence, I mean, domestic violence, I don't think any man goes out to beat up his partner. Uh, but if that, if that man is traumatized, uh, if that man has mental illness, uh, well, we know that's a, that's a major cause of, of domestic violence. So, you know, the benefits of getting people well are extraordinary. We just have to have, we just have, to have the courage to take the first step. Yeah, I think I think that's the nail on the head, right? It's a courage as as a society, as you know, all of our institutions need to go out and and agree to move forward with this. Peter, I know that Mind Medicine Australia has developed this program to train clinicians, and in some ways, it's really on the front foot because you know the program's out there before the Australian regulators have even approved the use of this this medicine or these medicines. Um, but you know, I think I think there's a really cool element in sort of getting ahead of the curve on that, and. From what I understand, this program's really tailored to clinicians, so so mental health practitioners um, or, or people who effectively want to fill that role in guiding individuals through these sorts of sessions. Can you talk to us a little bit about what those courses are, um, what it involves, and what the uptake's been and the feedback? Yeah. Uh, well, there's two courses. The first one is uh, the Certificate in Psychedelic-Assisted Therapies. And in order to get in, into that course, You've got to have a medical background and you've got to have uh, uh, experience with dealing with patients with mental illness. That's entirely focused on clinicians and it's taught by clinicians. The second course is a course that we put out in the middle half of last year, which has had great take up, which is, which is a, called Fundamentals of Psychedelic Assisted Therapy. And that's designed for a much broader audience. Uh, it's much less intensive, but it's designed to bring anybody who's interested up the learning curve. With the certificate course for the clinicians, the reason we started that is that we anticipate that uh, we, could have a, we could have a challenge in Australia with regulators. In other words, regulators would quite rightly say to us, Peter, this all looks very prospective, uh, but we don't have anyone in Australia who can do it. So we wanted to meet that, as you say, ahead of the curve by ensuring that there were people in Australia who had been properly trained. One thing that uh, I think a lot of people don't realize, and that is in, in Australia, we have two types of medicines that are used. Uh, the first one are registered medicines. So they've gone through the trial process that you talked about before, and they've been registered on the Australian uh, 
therapeutic goods register. And that enables doctors to prescribe them. There's a second group and they, and they can prescribe them without going back to the TGA every time for permission to describe. So you, know, you go and ask for some statins, the doctor writes out a prescription, he doesn't contact uh, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, he just writes out the prescription and that's because it's registered medicine. There's an, another category of medicine and medicinal cannabis fits into the second category, uh, which haven't gone through all the trials, but where the safety and efficacy data is strong enough that a doctor who has a treatment resistant patient and believes that the medicine could be helpful can apply to the TGA on a case by case basis for permission. And that's again, what's happening with medicinal cannabis. What we found in Australia is that a psychiatrist who applies for approval to use psilocybin or MDMA as part of therapy gets, can get approval from the TGA. So the permit system works. The challenge is the states and the territories because they're, the, they're at the front line of uh, enforcing recreational drug laws and they struggle in their minds to separate medical use from recreational use. And that's where the resistance is at the moment. But hopefully that resistance, resistance will be overcome. And if it is, it means that uh, these therapists who've been trained can start to practice because the doctor will be able to get the permit from the TGA at the federal level and will be able to get the local state or territory permit. The second immediate use of these of this, these qualifications is obviously to be therapists on trials. Um, that's the background to it. Uh, it's a 16-week course. It's a combination of online uh, webinars, and they're run by an international faculty with some of the leading experts in the world. So you know, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary clinicians and researchers, people like you know Professor David Nutt. Uh, head of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and one of the leading researchers in the world, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who many people uh, will know of, an extraordinary clinician has done a lot of work in the addiction and trauma space. He's one of the people who uh, uh, lecture on the course. Wade Davis, who's an extraordinary anthropologist uh, from Canada. He talks about what you talked about, and that is the history of these substances and, and how they have been used ceremonially really since the dawn of time. Uh, and then a host of other clinicians uh, and researchers who teach online. The second element is residentials. And we use holotropic breathing as a way of getting uh, the people going through the course to understand what an altered state means. So, you know, that might, for those in your audience who've taken psychedelics you know what an altered state is but if you've never done it uh, and I try to describe to you what being in an altered state is like it's really hard because language will never be able to explain and holotropic breathing is something that can be used to enable somebody to go into an altered state and it can be used legally so that's why we use it I should say that you know when I say we I don't teach in the course. I teach one subject in the course, which is the regulatory environment, because that's I'm equipped to do. I don't teach anything associated with clinical practice because I'm not a clinician. That's all done by clinicians. Yeah, I, I, I did smile when I when I read your bio beforehand. And I thought, gosh, this is one non-clinician speaking to another non-clinician <laughs> about something very clinical. <laughs> but so, okay, yeah. no, I'm just overcome by curiosity. Have, have you taken psychedelic substances that you're happy to to disclose publicly? Yeah, I mean, we. Uh, I mean, by way of background, you know, I, I took. Uh, I, I went through the educational process to become a lawyer, and then became an investment banker. And I focused really hard on getting good grades and I never took drugs. So I was never part of the recreational scene. I think I tried in my youth marijuana a couple of times and I didn't actually like it very much. And people keep telling me it's wonderful. I've never quite worked out why. Uh, I guess I probably don't like smoking. So, it's, uh, so I've never done rec recreational drugs. Uh, I, you know, I have the old glass of wine, but I don't drink very much. My drug of choice, frankly, is coffee. I love, I love a coffee. My wife is even more strict. I mean, Tanya doesn't uh, drink alcohol. Uh, she never did recreational drugs. So when we first heard about these therapies, I've got to say, my, my immediate reaction was the, the reaction of bias. 
that it couldn't be possible. I mean, these things have been demonized. Uh, I always thought they were dangerous. So I was from that school of, you know, I've been told they're bad, dangerous drugs. They must be. And she came across an article written by Michael Poland, which was about a, a New York University trial for people at end of life who had uh, terminal illness. They were suffering depression and anxiety. They went through a course of this psychedelic therapy, psilocybin therapy, and and by far the bulk of them came out of it out of it feeling at peace with the fact that they did have a terminal illness, and that's an amazing gift. And one of them was a, a Holocaust survivor uh, who had been traumatized, obviously, by what he had gone through and what his family had gone through. An old person, and Tanya's Jewish, and Tanya, like I think, so many Jewish people. I mean, she wasn't in the Holocaust, but it, it's sort of the DNA. It's sort of uh, that happened to family members, and they carry a lot of uh, trauma associated with that. And that piqued her interest. And so she started, because my wife is an amazing networker, she started talking to researchers and she tried to get us into trials. And uh, because I'm a loving husband, I just went along with it. You know, if she wants to do that, I'll support her. We couldn't get into trials because we don't have any obvious mental illness. Uh, so that didn't work. And then she, she was referred by one of the researchers to a, a person in Holland who was a therapist who practices in this area. And in Holland, it is legal. So we went across there and we took the tablet. And I came out of that experience finally understanding, one, how powerful the experience was, but secondly, that this was something that could make a dramatic difference for people who are struggling with, with particular types of mental illness like depression and anxiety. So, yeah, I, I've tried it. I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't talk about this subject, frankly, unless I had tried it. Because, you know, you'd, you'd be quite rightly saying, well, Peter, like, you know, you're, you're describing the experience. Have you had it? And when I said no, you'd be saying, well, you're kidding, mate. I mean, how can you describe an experience you've never had? I have had the experience uh, several times now because I go to, I go to Europe, uh, well, I was pre-COVID most years. Uh, in Holland, it's perfectly legal. You can go into shops and buy the psilocybin. And hey, presto, Holland still survives as a civilised society. Uh, you know, this is where this whole debate becomes so ridiculous. We have examples of countries like Holland where you can go into a shop and buy the stuff and yet Holland is a civilized country. It's efficient. It has its own problems like we do, but society hasn't come to a grinding halt because psilocybin has been legalized. Now I'm, I'm deliberately avoiding getting into the legalization debate because I don't want to distract people from medical use because that's the most urgent thing at the moment, helping people with mental illness. But boy, as a society, do we need to look at these recreational drug laws and start doing a risk return analysis on, on them and get over this get over this burden that we seem to carry that somehow it's acceptable for a person to go into a bottle shop, buy two bottles of whiskey, get drunk, get into his car, kill somebody. That's that seems to be we accept that that's gonna that's a risk of alcohol, but we we allow people to, to drink alcohol. You know, this nonsense that we should demonize a substance that's actually been shown to be far safer than alcohol is ridiculous. But again, I don't really want to get into that area because then some people are going to say, well, Peter, I'm not sure about that. And we'll get into a debate. I just want people to focus on medical safety and medical outcomes. Because if you do that, the evidence is indisputable. I repeat that. If you, if you do the analysis and you look at the research, it is quite obvious that we can use these substances safely in a medically controlled environment. And it's quite obvious that they can actually take people into remission. How as a, as a society do we justify stopping patients having access to that? Patients who are desperately in need of these sorts of substances as part of therapy. It is, for me, it's unconscionable, but that's the society we live in and we have to take people up the curve and that's what my medicine is trying to do. I think that's a great place to, to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I'm conscious of time. I'm sure many of our listeners will be nodding vehemently together with me here. It's, it's great to see organizations that have this purpose and this drive. 
it's great to hear strong advocates like yourself to voice their own stories, but also contextualize it with data and, and numbers and and help these large, slow-moving institutions take slow steps in the right direction. So, um, you know, thank you for, for what you're doing and, and the work you're doing. If anyone is listening and they think, gosh, I'd love to know more about these training programs or I'd love to just up my understanding or I'd love to connect in with the community, where could they go? Uh, go onto our, mid-site, uh, onto our website, mymedicineaustralia.org. You'll find there a wealth of information about the therapies, the trials, all the data you really need to go up the learning curve. Uh, if you want to go further, uh, you'll see on our website a link to fundamentals in, in fundamentals of psychedelic assisted therapies. Uh, that's a four-week online course, uh, two hours a week. That will get you right up the learning curve. It's taught by brilliant clinicians. If you happen to be a clinician and you want to actually learn how to practice, uh, you'll find details of that on our website as well. It, it, if you have any questions, uh, the, there's an ability to, to send emails through to us and we will res- respond to them. We also have chapters around Australia. These are groups of people uh, who believe in what we're doing and support it. And if you want to join one of those, again, there are lists of, of where the chapters are located around Australia. And there's chapters in every capital city and also chapters in uh, major regional centres. So a lot of places you can go to go up the learning curve. And I'd really invite your leader, your listeners to put the effort in to understanding just how prospective these therapies are and how they can change our society by getting many, many more people out of the mental health system and living the lives that we all want them to live. Absolutely. That's, that's such a strong place to go. So let, let's, let's make it happen. Thank you all for your right. time, Peter. Lovely to talk to you. You, you take care, Ruth. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Peter Hunt. You can find us at talklink.com.au. See you soon.